Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report Magazine. And today on our show, we've got another conversation in our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race Californians. The most common question that I got growing up was, what are you? I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me? You know, where do I fit in? Who do I identify with? I need all my mixed people to talk about it, express yourself, your perspective. I'm mixed and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise and I'm not planning on changing. (laughs) KQED's Marisa Lagos and I have been talking with a wide range of people about their experiences of being mixed race. And today our guest is someone who butted heads with his own family over questions of identity for his entire life. Reginald Daniel was a University of California Santa Barbara professor. He passed away suddenly in November, just a few weeks after speaking with us. Before his death, Professor Daniel taught the longest-running college course on multiracial identity in the nation. Reg Daniel is the, was the smartest, funniest, truest human being I ever met. Unquestionably one of the great racial theorists of the late 20th and early 21st century and maybe of all time. He was a guy that made ideas pop in everybody. That's UCSB professor Paul Spickard, who was Reg Daniels' co-editor on the Journal of Critical Mixed Race Studies. He's the person who gave us the permission to think about multiplicity, about fluidity, about contingency, about race as a performance not necessarily as something that is in your genes, about race as something that we enact together. He did all that. Professor Daniel was raised in a Black family in the South, but he was pretty light-skinned. And from an early age, he had really big questions about his family's racial makeup. You've probably heard of the one-drop rule, which was actually a legal principle. And it basically said, if you have even one Black ancestor, one drop of Black blood, you were Black, period. Right. It was basically a way to maintain a racial caste system. It reinforced slavery so that people of mixed Black ancestry would still be considered slaves. And then later on, it was used to prevent interracial marriages. And while the one-drop rule was effectively ended by the Supreme Court back in 1967, its legacy is very much part of our culture and how we perceive Blackness in American society. So here's our conversation with Professor Reggie Daniel from last fall. We're really grateful we got this time with him before he passed. So tell us, how do you identify and what are the words that you use to describe your identity? I identify as a multiracial person, uh, although I'm open to people using the term mixed race or racially mixed, just depending on the context. Uh, And I let people know 
that my multiraciality is grounded in the African diaspora because of being part Black, and that I'm engaged in the struggles of Black people as well as a broader anti-racist struggle because of it. So you grew up in the South at a time when there was still a, a lot of segregation. And I know that your whole family identified as being Black, essentially. So talk about, before we get to your sort of revelation, you know, what race was like talked about in your family as a young child? They didn't talk about it at all, uh, which was really kind of fascinating. Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I grew up, I mean, we couldn't sit at the, the, the counters in Woolworth. We had to stand so I have very clear memories of those. And you grew up with a certain sense of anxiety about appropriate behavior and what things could happen if you crossed the line unwittingly and didn't know. But all of the grandparents are themselves the offspring of what we would consider to be interracial unions. Two of them were not marriages. The other ones were. So there was a sense, I think, of shame about that. Uh, that ancestry and the privileges that often come uh, at that time, particularly among African-Americans about being lighter skinned and all this whole kind of thing. So there was a great deal of silence about it. But for me, I was just looking at the world around me and saw a lot of things that nobody wanted to talk about. Uh, but then when I began to realize that it's much more complicated than that, and my family was really very silent about it. And they were really uncomfortable with me asking questions about our background and why we look the way we look. I was an outlier uh, throughout my entire life to identify as mixed, and my family was not happy about it. Talk about that a little more. I mean, what was their reaction and how, as a young child, did you bring this to them? Well, they would hear me talk about it and it's just, no, 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 you're, you're a Negro. And I didn't understand what they meant, first of all, when they said that, because it's like, well, what color is Negro? because I'm approaching it strictly from colors. Crayola came out with a tan and a flesh color that year in the first grade. And um, I, I had always thought of myself as tan. I mean, that was the color that I always thought I was. I, the only way I could get my skin color was when we had paints, because I could mix brown and white paint. So I just had a sense of myself as being tan, and tan is a mixture of brown and white. And they tried to explain to me, well, no, it's not about color, it's about ancestries. But if we have all these other ancestries, why does African ancestry override all of them? And they couldn't answer that, other than because. And for me, that wasn't good enough. So they thought there was something wrong with me perceptually. They thought I had a, uh, I don't want to call it, call it a mental disability, but that's kind of the way they made it feel, as if I was out of touch with reality and they needed to get me back in touch with it. Where do you think that anxiety about multiracial people with Black ancestry identifying as mixed comes from? Is it that it would dilute the struggle for civil rights and racial justice? They feel it's a sense of betrayal to the Black struggle. But I'm saying, can't you be in the Black struggle and be multiracial too? Is there a problem with that? How, how, why is that a contradiction? But the assumption is that a monoracial identity is the only trajectory to be engaged in the struggles of Black people. Some of that is also based on history, because historically, multiracial identified people have used their identity as an attempt to achieve white adjacency. So this is not coming out of a vacuum. And I think there are people, in fact, who may still embrace a multiracial identity as an attempt to become closer to whiteness. It's hard, and it's going to take a long time because uh, our society is functioning the way it is in terms of the rightness of whiteness, so to speak. But the more people who are willing to step out, be engaged in anti-racist work, be engaged in the struggles of other communities of color, while also identifying as multiracial, I think people will begin to see 
more examples of the fact that people can say they're multiracial and not be against the struggle. Did your parents ever come around, or no, was this no. always a wedge? It was always a wedge. My mother and father were divorced when I was about two years old, so he really was not in the picture, but it was my mother, my grandmother, and I. And my mother's sister, very much African-American identified, but as, looked as white as any white person, uh, passed for white for a long period of time when she was in New York. Uh, she never saw herself as a multiracial person. She saw herself as a Negro passing for white. Do you find mixed troublesome in any way? I know some people object to it. Um, we obviously are using it for this series. And one of the things we've talked about it is it kind of rolls off the tongue more easily than multiracial. Lord have mercy, yes. Uh, it's like trying to say white and black rather than African-American and European-Americans. <laughs> oh, please, let's just get this over with and just let's say black and white. Uh, yeah, and I think you're right. Uh, and and uh, there are people who prefer the term mixed or mixed race. Over the years when I was really young, I just saw myself as mixed. And then uh, I became a member of an organization in Los Angeles called Mask Multiracial Americans of Southern California. Uh, that was founded in the early part of the 80s, they were using a new word that I'd never heard before called multiracial. And the reason they were using that word was they felt it moved beyond the whole notion of uh, mixed people being mixed up. And that they felt mixed was an externally imposed uh, label during the colonial era. And they wanted to come up with something a little bit more chic, shall we say, and more engaging. So they were using the word multiracial, and I think people need to be flexible and sensitive to differences in terms of talking about the same thing. And I don't think getting obsessed about what's appropriate and what's not gets very far. Barack Obama is probably one of the highest profile mixed race Americans with black heritage, but his relationship to his mixed identity is interesting. You actually wrote a book about him and how his visibility changed the conversation around race. I'm the son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas. I was raised with the help of a white grandfather who survived a depression to serve in uh, he identifies as a black man, so there's, we have to be clear about that. He's a black man with a white mother, so clearly he's reaffirming the one-top rule. But his blackness is also a little bit fuzzy and doesn't quite fit the typical blackness that we might think of historically in terms of black politicians particularly. So I do think temporarily it opened up the beginning of a new way of thinking about backgrounds, and I think we're seeing the continuation of that but I don't think it has seeped out into the larger public consciousness for them to really rethink what this actually means and about what does this say about the history, the image of our country, what we think we are and what we really are. But I do think it was a small step and an important one. He didn't help matters, of course, because people said, well, wait a minute, he has a white mother and he's calling himself black, so what is that? I thought, well, it's the one drop rule and he's maintaining it. How did coming to California change things for you in terms of your thinking about your own identity and about multiracial identity? 
when I first came here, it was very clear to me that the sort of in-betweenness of the Latino population out here uh, provided some sort of leverage for people who are also in between in other kinds of ways. You know, and everybody is also creating new identities in California. That's the state's purpose. If you want to be different and be new, come out to California. Uh, and it's no surprise that here that we have the largest number of multiracial people in the nation here in California. And uh, Hawaii has a higher percentage because it's such a smaller state. But California is higher than the national average. And so uh, and the multiracial movement originated in California. Let me ask you this, because something struck me as you were talking. As someone who's part Mexican and grew up in California in a border city, I always oh, yeah. had a lot of ambivalence and almost imposter syndrome because I don't speak Spanish that well. Right. But to your point, we're all mixed, right? I mean, Latinos especially, part of the construct of being Mexican is that you could have indigenous, European, and African blood, right? Totally. Do you find that because of that, Latinos think differently about this than particularly Black folks? Or do you think that that's just as confusing? Because, you know, we're still talking about, you know, the Latino vote, for example, in this moment. I think Latinos are a really perfect case study of how complicated this can be. Even though people do talk about mestizaje, they don't articulate their identities as mestizos, largely, or, or as mixed people. That may be changing, particularly with people who are white in Mexico, where there are a huge number here in California. I would say the biggest problem with people of Mexican background is they don't really know about the African component to their background. And this is really troubling, but there's a reason for it, because in Mexico, there's a big denial about it. And coming here, it's even more challenging because of the implications of, of African ancestry and Blackness. I want to ask you about the course you teach called Betwixt and Between. You started teaching it at UCLA. You've continued teaching it at UC Santa Barbara. It's arguably the longest-running college class on mixed-race studies in the U.S. How has the course changed since you started teaching it back in 1989? When I first started teaching it, in fact, I was terrified <laughs> walking into the classroom because I didn't know if people would understand what I was talking about. And I used comparisons like, you know, broccoli flower, which is broccoli and cauliflower, and a cockapoo, which is kind of, you know, mermaids. You know, they're they're all these <laughs> they're, they're all these entities in our world that we're familiar with that are hybrid. And so I don't do that anymore. At that point, uh, this topic was just beginning to become part of the public discourse. Uh, some people were terrified when I first taught the course that you know there were going to be riots or something like that. Exactly the opposite happened. Uh, a lot of students were, were looking for an opportunity to talk about this. I would say the demographics have changed over the years and that there are more and more people in the classes who actually do identify uh, as biracial or multiracial or mixed, whatever term they use. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look that I've used the Matrix, part one, uh, as a tool to get people to understand that ambiguity is really part of the problem here, that people don't like to not be able to put people somewhere. You see an insider picture of all the people on the hovercraft, and they're all outsiders in some way. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. 
And so when you're dealing with ambiguity, the desire is to resolve that ambiguity by putting a person in a binary or a dichotomous framework. And multiracial people actually don't fit in that. And so it's, it's troubling that, that, that people can't locate you racially, partially so they can know how to treat you. And where do they place you in the racial hierarchy? Because they have a lifeblood interest in keeping that system intact because it makes the world very clear and it keeps their location in the hierarchy very, very safe. And anything that challenges that is a threat to their existence, which they've come to believe in for so long. I mean, that's so interesting because I think we often think about this just in relation to white supremacy and the protection of that system. But a lot of the groups you're talking about are, are pushing back against white supremacy and yet have this desire to keep some of the systems the same, right? It's hard when your community has been oppressed and, and disrespected for so long to welcoming any kind of uh, opening to the intermediate world as being a tool for change. But to me, I say, you know, well, in terms of not only dismantling this sort of suffocating binary we live in, which is not accurate, it's an imposition that is put there for various reasons to maintain power. When you do that and you also seek to dismantle the hierarchy within which the binary is constructed, then you're beginning to tackle the overarching powers of the structure. We do have this new generation of kids, you Absolutely. know, like my kids born in uh, 10, 2010 and 2012. Um, I My spouse is somebody who's mixed Japanese, Mexican. My kids have lots of different heritages to call on. And, you know, they are growing up in a different Absolutely. world. They're not experiencing the isolation that, that we did um, growing up. Absolutely. They, they have the census. They can check Very off. Very much. They're exposed to much more diversity in their daily lives, not just racial, but gender, sexuality, all kinds of things. That would have been so like, oh my God, how could that happen? Challenging, the, well, challenging you know, the boxes in all ways. I got a non-binary mixed race just, kid absolutely. and every day they challenge absolutely. the boxes. Absolutely. And you're going to see more of that because those boxes have were created perhaps for some clarity, but mostly for oppression to keep people located in a place so they don't get out of get out of line in terms of where their you know privilege is. And I think that's going to have ramifications across the board, is, is that these children are growing up not only in a more diverse world, a world that doesn't have the kinds of delineations that many of us have grown up in, but they're also just dismissing all of them, many of them, and they're saying, well, they're just not relevant for me. I don't know why they're there in the first place, but they're not helping me move forward in life, so why should I even acknowledge them, let alone reproduce them? As, like Sasha, a parent of mixed-race kids with, you know, my, mo my mom actually drew me a, a pie chart when I was a child to try to explain my identity. Um, but I often hear, I think sometimes from white people, the most pushback around claiming parts of your identity if you have whiteness also. It seems like you try to do both, right? You say, I am mixed, I'm multiracial, but I'm also black. <laughs> um, and how would you talk to kids about that? Because they are asking these questions. It's really important for kids to know that there is racial privileges and not all groups benefit from it. And that if you have a white background, you need to understand the history. I mean, everybody, white kids even themselves need to understand the privileges that come to white people, even if they don't desire them just because of whiteness, uh, which is not about feeling guilty about being white, but understanding that there are advantages to that. And if you have them, maybe you should use them to be engaged in anti-racist work. I think parents should be very open about discussing 
the history of the family history, the children's backgrounds and how things happen, what it means to have slave ancestry or Native American ancestry or whatever other ancestry, does not hide it. Uh, and, and children will learn to navigate the identities with which they're most comfortable. None of them are better, quote-unquote, than the other, although some of them come with more social privilege. You know, I always say in my classes, the lighter the skin, the whiter the collar. Uh, and I think that's pretty accurate. So I think being open and honest with children is the most important thing, not dodging around things, not avoiding conversations. And parents will learn a lot of stuff about their own, themselves in the process. Yet you've cautioned around, you know, some of the naive tropes around yeah. mixed identity, right? Totally. That like, oh, Saving the world. mixed people are <laughs> racial ambassadors mm-hmm. and we're post-racial messiahs and mixing no. is going to save no. the world. No. I mean, that's really problematic, right? Because right. we still have a white supremacist structure. You know, biracial people have a wonderful opportunity to be engaged in anti-racist work or uh, a more, more equitable society based on their complex backgrounds. That can be a marvelous tool. And I think multiracial people have an opportunity to bring that to the conversation, but they're not the only ones. I think anybody who wants to be engaged in the anti-binary and anti-dichotomous thinking can do that. But I think if you have to deal with in your personal life, on a fairly regular basis, you bring some important authoritative experience to that. So you talked about California as being at the forefront. Um, artists are also often pop culture, yes. you know, pushing mm-hmm. boundaries. When you think about mixed race identity and pop culture, are like, are, do you have any favorite examples of folks or of types of yeah music, whatever that that comes to mind? You know, Tabitha on Bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like this little girl who's half witch and half human, and look what she can do. You haven't apologized to her for accusing her of being a full-blooded witch. Now, you know that's impossible. Why? Her mother's a witch. But you're not. You're mortal. So the most she can be is a half-blooded witch. You're right. We heard you were a Prince fan. That is one man who really messed with everybody's boxes and boundaries. Right. Like his song literally called Controversy, which has lyrics like, am I black or white? He just did not play around with it. But I think he wanted to convey his gender, racial complexity, and he played with all of those uh, in everything he did. I think that was part of one of the reasons he was so inspiring for people, and they may not have even known it. What's your favorite Prince song? Oh, wow. I love Diamonds and Pearls. Uh, uh, Raspberry Beret. I mean, there were just so many of uh, his songs that uh, I resonated with. It was fabricated out of this hybrid aesthetic that uh, I think made him very unique, and it made it think it made him resonate with many different people. We've talked a lot to other folks, especially about the challenges of being mixed race, but we also want to talk about how amazing it is. So what do you celebrate most about mixed race identity? Well, you know, I actually <laughs> haven't thought about that part, to be honest with you. It is a struggle because, you, you know, on a daily basis, you're trying to articulate your identity in the face of a social reality that constantly erodes it and erases it. 
And so I have no choice but to be who I am. And if it's a problem for other people, which it can be on a daily basis, you just live with that. And I'm not the only one. But to me, the value is getting people to rethink the way they think about things. And in that educational moment, for example, you may be able to get a person to realize, oh, wow, I made an assumption there that was not accurate. Wow, how, what, do I, what do I do about that? And I, this is particularly the case for people who might be white passing. And by that, I mean people who are multiracial identified, perhaps, but people don't know that and just assume they're white people and say all kinds of disparaging things about people of color, maybe even some of the things relating to their background to be able to say, oh, excuse me, let me clarify something, who I am. Uh, I think it, you, you get a lot of teachable moments if you want to take the time to do so about getting people to move outside of their rather restrictive ways of looking at the world and seeing it as far more ambiguous, which is close, much closer to reality. Yeah. I mean, it gets to the heart of this. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is a hard conundrum, right? Because like, yes, now we have the option to check more than one box. Uh, but if I only have one choice, right, I'm going to check for me the South Asian box because I want to sure. count in that box. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to deny my whiteness. But I was saying earlier, like I had a white friend really <laughs> sort of confront me because I was speaking at the National Association for Hispanic Journalists. And she's like, yeah, so what she's are you like, doing you're white. Here? And I'm like, OK, well, yeah, but I'm also right. And it's funny because nobody ever questions. I'm a quarter Armenian and a quarter Mexican. Nobody ever questions my Armenianness, oh. Right. No. Which is also white. But whatever. It's <laughs> complicated. Yeah. And, and that that's the challenge right there. Right. You have just as much a legitimate right to be there as anybody else, but the question of your authenticity is at stake. For example, if we had a room where people were putting people together to have discussions and they had people to join groups based on their ethnic identity, you know, African-American, Native American, Latinx, Asian-American, whatever the particular groups are, white American, European American, if I walked into that room and I was supposed to choose a box, I would just sit in the middle of the room. Uh, I I wouldn't go do any of the boxes if I came in there and they had a clearly designated place for mixed people. I wouldn't even have to think, oh, my God, I wonder if I should go there. I wonder if I should go to the black group. I wonder what they will think about me. I was like, I don't care what they think. I'm going to where I know I will be. These are my people, <laughs> quote unquote, if we want to talk about race that I resonate with the most. It's just always been very natural for me to think of myself as being an in-betweener or a liminal man that fits, you know, in, in the in-between spaces. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise, and I'm not planning on changing. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me not to be myself. How do I do that? And that was UC Santa Barbara professor Reginald Daniel. He was talking with us for our series Mixed, and we recorded that conversation just a few weeks before his death in November 2022. Professor Daniel taught the longest-running course on mixed-race studies in the U.S. He also authored a number of books, including More Than Black, Multiracial Identity and the New Racial Order, and Race and the Obama Phenomenon, The Vision of a More Perfect Multiracial Union. We feel so honored to air this tribute to his work and his visionary thinking and his contributions to the field of mixed-race studies. That's going to do it for the California Report magazine this week. Next week, stay tuned for the next episode in our series Mixed. We're going to talk to fashion activist and ethnic studies advocate Joemi Ito. We didn't talk about what it meant for me to be a multiracial kid, 
to be Asian presenting, to have two parents who were of different races and very different cultures and backgrounds. Um, so there was just a lot of silence and I did experience a tremendous amount of racism um, as a child. That's next week on the California Report magazine. You can check out our whole mix series on calreport.org. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. We had help on this episode from Izzy Bloom and Jessica Carissa. I'm Sasha Coca, And I'm Marisa Lagos. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.